You live in Virginia, right? I used to. I moved to D.C. last year. Oh. Can you move back? Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined today by uh, Andrew Prokop and Dara Lind, uh, both from our politics team. I wanted to talk about the upcoming uh, gubernatorial election in, in Virginia, which, you know, is an important sort of event on its own terms and also, I think, raises a lot of interesting questions uh, that, that we're talking about. Dara had duped me into believing that that she was an actual Virginia resident, uh, but but apparently left left the, uh, what's it, Old Dominion? Is that is that Virginia? The, yes, the Old Dominion or the Commonwealth of Virginia. Ah, yes. Um, but you're you're familiar with it. It's, it's intricate byways. We can do, like, political reporter stuff. What you have to understand is, you know, the orange line and... No, I was I was on the yellow line. I am. I I was such is that a the resident. Real Virginia? No, 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 no. I was such a resident of fake Virginia that on the rare occasions where we took the wrong exit off, it was very clear that this was not my milieu. <laughs> I was in you know straight up high rise, you know metro accessible, cute little cafe Virginia. Ah, uh, there we go. Cute cafes, the worst. Um. So okay. So there's there's an election, and just like broadly, um. You know, Andrew, like, what's 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 going on? What's what's happening? So uh, the Virginia governor's seat is open because uh, the governor can only serve one term or can't serve two consecutive terms, and uh, so the the uh, it's currently held by an incumbent Democrat, Terry McAuliffe, but. The people who are running to replace him are McAuliffe's own lieutenant governor, uh, Democrat Ralph Northam, and Ed Gillespie, who is uh, has been a Republican operative and lobbyist for a long time, uh, headed the RNC at one point, worked in the George W. Bush administration, and uh, he ran for Senate in 2014 against Mark Warner and came shockingly close to actually winning that race, a race that was on nobody's radar really at the time. So so it's it's kind of like this is the first big marquee swing state governor's race of the Trump era. Uh, New Jersey also has a race uh, on the same day, but uh, it's not expected to be competitive. The Democrat is uh, winning uh, by a lot. So this has really been sort of taken as a test for for what these down ballot races might look like in the era of President Trump. And I think there's sort of two competing, like, expectations narratives out there, one of which is is winning, but I think both of which have some some validity that's important to keep in mind, right? And so one is to say, okay, Ed Gillespie, a couple years ago, running against an incumbent statewide, came really, really, really close to winning. And so running statewide in an open seat, Ed Gillespie seems like a strong candidate who is pretty well-liked by the voters of Virginia and has a really good chance of winning, Another narrative is Virginia is a state that Obama won twice, that Hillary won. It's a very rare state that Hillary won by a larger margin in 2016 than Obama did in 2012. So this is a state where the sort of Trumpist shift in Republican politics uh, maybe, you know, did not play very well. And so if Democrats are going to, you know, 
have a down ballot revival, a place like Virginia is a place where they should be should be crushing Republicans. Uh, so we've had polls which show the polls pretty consistently show Northam ahead. Uh, but I think because the sort of latter set of expectations has sort of dominated in the media, the the commentary has sort of mostly focused on the idea that Northam is is struggling or that Gillespie is doing well. Also because Democrats like uh, prefer, I think to. I don't want to say Democrats, but uh, left of center pundits prefer to lose elections so they can do, you know, the recriminations around it. Uh, I feel and like people, people, people will be disappointed of, if the polls turn out to be right and, and Northam just wins by four. Yeah, I think that there's some kind of overcorrection in, you know, feeling that, well, OK, 2014 was an unexpectedly close election in Virginia. 2016, obviously, like many of the polls did not properly state, you know, the way certain states were going. There's a certain kind of once bitten, twice shy going on, where if the polls show something, if the if the polls are such that if the polls are very wrong, Gillespie will win, that means that the polls are very wrong, Gillespie will win. Right, right. So, but it is worth pointing out that in 2016, the polls of Virginia were actually spot on. Uh, they showed Hillary Clinton winning by about five points, and that's what happened in the state. So, so there wasn't any sort of like big polling surprise. The uh, the sort of hesitancy comes from uh, that uh, that Mark Warner race in 2014. Uh, the polls showed him ahead by around ten points, and he won by less than one point. So, uh, so there there's at least some precedent for Democrats to be nervous about Virginia, particularly perhaps uh, under performing their polls there. I would also say there's a there's a question of strategy in, in these things, too. Um, Clinton's campaign projected confidence throughout the election, right? That was always a thing. Even when, if national polls would show her with a three-point lead, if you would sort of talk to people in there, they'd be like, it's fine. We've got it. Like, it's a three-point lead. Our internal numbers show it a little better than that. Like, we are going to win this election. That was a I think, a a genuine belief on their part, but also a strategic choice on their part, that they wanted to always project confidence. Uh, The Northam campaign has not been doing that. Like, what they project in their off-the-record remarks to journalists is, this is a close race. We've got to work really hard and try to win. Like, they want Democrats to feel nervous about this. I mean, they don't, they're, they obviously are not projecting like we're bumbling this race and we're going to be defeated and embarrassed, but they are trying to say like, this is a competitive election. You should give us money. You should volunteer. You should cheer us on. And and that plays into this, right? I mean, anytime uh, when an outlier poll comes out that like shows Northam way up, people are like, well, nobody believes he, he's winning like that. I mean, I think that that kind of message has trickled up so that national Democrats do believe that if they're not bumbling the race, that at least they're being outmaneuvered. And I'm hearing that anxiety increasingly strong because of these attacks that Ed Gillespie has been, you know, really pushing on the airwaves. Anyone who lives in the D.C. area and and watches television has seen a lot of Ed Gillespie ads. And I think that that's kind of that attack in particular is is something that you wanted to talk about, Matt. Right. right. So so these are ads. They say basically that the. the There's sort of four different Gillespie ads, and they all tie back to this idea that Ralph Northam cast a deciding vote in favor of sanctuary cities, and that this sanctuary cities vote makes Virginians unsafe against MS-13, which is a a violent uh, international criminal gang. And in a sort of telling way, I think the most striking of these ads is like, 
Very little of the airtime is even about Ralph Northam. It's like an attack ad on MS-13, right? Which goes for like two-thirds of its run. It's just about how terrible MS-13 is. And then it just kind of mentions, oh, and Ralph Northam is soft on this gang, right? Because the policy thread connecting these two things is is really, really weak, you know? Um, but MS-13 is legitimately terrible. And it's a good bit of political media psychology to to do it this way, because it successfully frames the whole election now around this MS-13 question, even though it's not clear that there even is any such question. You know, there's there's not there's there's not a really robust policy disagreement between Ralph Northam and Ed Gillespie on the subject of the MS-13 gang. Yeah, I mean, I think that the other thing here is that MS-13 has actually been a long-standing kind of bogeyman in Northern Virginia in particular. There, I was just checking this out on the recommendation of a friend of mine who grew up in Virginia and was like, yeah, people were talking about this when I was in high school. And yeah, there were congressional hearings, you know, in the U.S. Congress in 2006 about MS-13 in Northern Virginia. Like, are we doing enough? So this is something that even residents of Northern Virginia, i.e. the part of the state that's been really driving the bluing of Virginia, sees as a particularly local concern and might be tempted to kind of, you know, to see as a serious policy matter, not just racial fear-mongering, even though the actual policy here is is pretty separate. Right. So, I mean, to talk about this, right, um, in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, immigrants from El Salvador are one of the biggest sort of local immigrant communities, right, for, I, I don't know, exactly what the reasons are. But, you know, each city kind of like has its own ethnic groups that that tend to immigrate there. Uh, Salvadorans started coming to this area in the 1980s as a result of the uh, the civil war that, that was happening there. And communities established in the uh, sort of Mount Pleasant and Columbia Heights areas of, of D.C., also out in, into the suburbs to some extent in Virginia. And for 15 years or, or more now, there has been a presence of this MS-13 gang um, in that community. When I first moved to town in, in 2003, I lived in a, a fairly heavily Salvadoran neighborhood, and there was a big gang war between MS-13 and, and Vatos Locos, and it was uh, it very much dominated local news. Uh, and then in that neighborhood, kind of burned out. Uh, but the activity moved along with a lot of the actual immigrant population out into Virginia. So this is a a subject that has been you know local television news likes to do crime stories. And so MS-13 gang activity has been prevalent on local media, uh, both in the district and in Virginia, for for quite some time now. So this is definitely like a thing that is on people's minds. And if you had a plausible theory of, here's how we're going to make these guys not be killing so many people, understandably, I think voters would, would embrace that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, the the fun asterisk here is that there's a pretty compelling narrative of how MS-13 became so po- so powerful in El Salvador uh, that actually traces it back to U.S. immigration law. That in the 1990s, when the federal government passed a law that really caused them to start deporting large numbers of immigrants with criminal records, a lot of uh, Salvadorans who had been in prison and who had kind of started the Salvadoran prison gang. Uh, 
were sent back to El Salvador where they had nothing to do but, you know, become a transnational criminal organization, which then trickled back up to the U.S. Yeah, the gang itself is actually originates in the United States right. among El Salvadoran immigrants who were then sent back to El Salvador, became stronger there, and then is, is re-imported to, to the United States. But what's what's the sanctuary cities issue? Right. So this is, there's a reason that the term sanctuary cities hasn't come up on this podcast yet, and that's because the rise of transnational gangs and and gang violence and sanctuary cities are kind of separate policies. Um while the term sanctuary cities has never had any specific policy meaning and it's kind of been adopted as part of this broader culture war around Trump and does America welcome immigrants or exclude them? And so, you know, the question of whether a city like stands up and calls itself a sanctuary city is something that some mayors really want to do and some don't. When you're talking about it in, an, in a pseudo policy context, the way Ed Gillespie is using it, he's talking about when local law enforcement agencies decide that they're going to limit the extent to which they cooperate with federal immigration agents. In particular, this tends to center around a practice called detainers, where when somebody gets booked into a jail, their fingerprints get run through a couple of federal databases, one of which is now, thanks to a policy that the Obama administration really popularized, and a database of known immigrants. And so... It is possible that someone who's getting booked into a jail can ping something saying that they entered the U.S. illegally or that they're, you know, totally unknown and therefore not a legal immigrant, therefore unauthorized. So the federal government will send a request to the local jail officials saying, hey, it looks like you have a guy who we would like to try to deport. Can you hold him in jail for another 48 hours after you would you would otherwise release him so that we can come pick him up? That is not, you know, it's not a mandatory thing. Uh, there has been a lot of litigation over whether or not it is mandatory. And as there began to be frustration about the way that the Obama administration was using this to kind of turn immigrants who had like a traffic violation into criminal aliens and deport them, a lot of cities and some states started passing policies saying we're only going to cooperate with these detainer requests under certain circumstances, or in a couple of extreme cases, we're not going to cooperate with them at all. So the Obama administration eventually made it a little bit, you know, kind of tried rapprochement with these cities, made it a little bit easier to limit cooperation. The Trump administration, on the other hand, has obviously turned sanctuary cities into a big cause celeb, has been trying to strip cities that of federal grants because it argues that they violate a federal law about information sharing and has turned the issue of MS-13 into an issue of sanctuary cities by saying that they, you know, by declining to fully cooperate with ICE, these cities must be letting criminals out onto the streets. And ironically, if you look at what the Trump DHS is actually doing, they are particularly targeting so-called sanctuary cities to engage in immigration raids. So they're sending the message to local immigrant communities that sanctuary cities cannot keep them safe while they're telling, you know, the kind of American public that sanctuary cities are allowing criminals to just run rampant and there's nothing the federal government is going to be able to do to stop them. But when it comes to the state of Virginia in particular— they don't even have sanctuary cities, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the the, the bitter irony is that yes, Ralph Northam voted in, on this state law that you Cast know would the have deciding vote. Right. I learned in an ad <laughs> from Ed Gillespie um, that you know 
would have allowed cities to continue to do these policies, but there isn't, there aren't jurisdictions in Virginia that actually do limit detainer cooperation in that way. Right. So there was a, there were no Virginia cities that had adopted this non-cooperation policy, but Republicans in the state legislature put a bill that would have stripped funding from cities that did this hypothetically uh, because they wanted to create an issue. They they wanted to create a sanctuary cities issue, even though there wasn't one. Um, and Virginia Democrats, I would say, uh, largely took the bait on this. And although there were no Virginia cities that had non-cooperator policies, they stood up for the hypothetical right of such cities uh, to not cooperate because they are, like many things, this has become a topic that is of interest to activists on both sides, and Democrats wanted to be on the right side of it. Northam cast this vote, so you are not barred from being a non-cooperating city in Virginia if you want to, but no Virginia cities are not cooperating. So long story short, it's... Whatever the case, whatever the merits of this policy may be, the level of MS-13 activity in Virginia cannot possibly be attributed to sanctuary city policies by Virginia cities that don't exist. Right. I I do want to kind of defend Virginia Democrats on this a little bit because um, this bill, which also, which the state of Texas actually passed a much stricter version of this, uh, which would have legit made it a state crime for a local law enforcement official to, you know, to decline to cooperate and could have put a bunch of their local police chiefs in jail because the police chiefs of Texas did not like this bill. Uh, That has been blocked in the court pending further litigation. But it's part of a broader trend of as state legislators are dominated by Republicans and local city governments are dominated by Democrats, there's this you know, new avenue for state laws that is basically this thing liberals want to do, we should stop them, which is also how the, you know, the trans bathroom ban in in North Carolina started. So I think that, you know, defending the hypothetical here is also def- is also kind of standing up for the principle that just because cities tend to be blue and states tend to be red right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that should no, be a problem. I- but of course, Texas, you know, is doing this in a very different political context, they aren't saying MS-13, they're saying rah-rah border rah, which also doesn't have a whole lot to do with, you know, people who are in cities and, you know, what happens to someone who gets booked into a jail. But it just shows that the politics of immigration, because entering the U.S. without papers is a federal crime and being in the U.S., without status is, you know, like a civil violation, that the idea of law and order kind of encompasses both being an unauthorized immigrant in the U.S. and, you know, the fear that people will engage in further crimes. I'm just saying that I, to me, I mean, it's fine. I would not have voted for this law either. I understand why Virginia Democrats didn't want to vote for it. I understand why Ralph Northam didn't want to vote for it. But I guess what I'm saying is that Gillespie came out with these ads and I think the feeling among liberals is that these ads are intended to gin up a kind of racialized panic, right? He has, like, this, like, photo imagery of, like, guys in an El Salvadoran jail, and there's the implication that Ralph Northam has, like, unleashed them on, on the streets of Virginia. And, and I agree with all of that, but I also think that, like, crying racism as a— as a white politician, 
I think that it's like an inherently weak move. You know, it's like you're hoping that the RA from your dorm is going to come scold Ed Gillespie and make him stop, right? When, like, MS-13, they are bad. They really do kill people. Uh, The crime rate in Virginia, as has been the case in several, uh, a lot of American states, has gone up a bit in the past couple of years. It's legitimate for people to want the government to have a policy response to this. And Ed Gillespie's policy response to it is total bullshit, right? Cracking down on policies that don't exist cannot possibly solve the MS-13 violence problem in Virginia. And, like, the appropriate response to this is to, you know, you have to say that. You have to come up with something, like, for example, how Ed Gillespie wants to let just everybody have guns all the time and slaughter people. Like, that that seems bad to me. Um, I saw a really good ad by a Democrats' uh, attorney general candidate on TV today, which took the seemingly uh, unheard of to the Northam campaign approach of attacking the policy positions of his opponent as being bad and damaging to the interests of ordinary Virginians. And, like, to me, I mean, the thing that gives me the, like, queasy feeling about watching this campaign is, like, seeing Gillespie peddle this kind of total nonsense and then seeing Democrats just, like, hand-wring about it instead of, like, punching Aaron campaigning in any kind of real way. I mean, like, I agree that, like, the imagery and stuff in the ad, like, it's kind of sleazy. But just, like, beyond that, like, it's, it's, like, it's nonsense. Like, this is, this is not why there are gang activity in Virginia, because these policies don't exist. I mean, so, I think that you're, you know, I, I think you have the reaction of Democrats absolutely dead on. It reminds me much less of kind of 2016 when there was this feeling that like, yeah, he's trying this stuff, but when we call it out as racist and when we mobilize people to believe that America is better than this, that's going to be a winning issue for us. It feels much more like the kind of, you know, politics that Rahm Emanuel espoused as head of the DCCC, which is that there are culture war issues that Republicans can win on because, yeah, they're bigoted, but other people are bigoted with them. And therefore, you just have to kind of hide your head and hope that they go away because you actually disagree with the American public about these things. That's the kind of like sense that I'm getting from Democrats right now, that this is something that they genuinely don't feel they have public opinion on. Yes. uh, uh, And I think if you look at Northam's own messaging and the sorts of things he likes to talk about. It's very clear that he does not want to talk about immigration. He um, he has a preferred narrative that he's trying to push about Gillespie, which is that Gillespie is a corrupt corporate lobbyist who won't represent the interests of ordinary people. And that message is getting blasted on many ads throughout the state. It doesn't get as much attention from the national media because it's kind of you know, more boring. It doesn't play into, like, larger themes of uh, the age of Trump or whatever. But uh, but that is the message that he wants to push about Gillespie. And the issues that Northam himself wants to talk about are more along the lines of, you know, I'll create jobs or um, I-, I was listening to conservative talk radio earlier this week and, and I heard a Northam ad, which I guess was was targeted at conservative talk radio. And and it was all about calling Gillespie a corporate lobbyist, saying that Ralph Northam will cut your taxes and um, 
and then having him kind of speak in his uh, southern drawl for a while. So, uh, so I mean, that's not the sort of ad that, you know, uh, liberal-leaning national Democrats would get excited about necessarily, but it seemed to me like a reasonable use of uh, targeted messaging. Well, I think I'm, the other frustrating thing here for Democrats is they know they win on the policy. Like, they have all the, like— you know, message testing polls where once people are walked through the policy, they go, oh, it sounds kind of reasonable that local police should be, or that local jail officials should be able to decide who gets turned over to ICE. But they know that that kind of weedsy, empirical response doesn't get to the heart of what's being done here. It is correct that Ed Gillespie's ads are powerful, not because he is making a cogent argument for against sanctuary cities, right? It's about this, in, in general, you know, something that I keep coming back to in, you know, my thinking about this issue is that in the immigration debate, facts are usually a stalking horse for values. And so you can debate the empirics of, you know, do or don't immigrants commit higher crime, higher crime rates than Americans until you're blue in the face. The fact of the matter is that there are people who oppose immigration because they are worried about the fabric of America being changed. And there are people who oppose immigration because they, who oppose in particular unauthorized immigration because they feel that, you know, upholding law and order is important. And to both of those groups of people, opposing sanctuary cities is symbolic, but matters because it's symbolic, because you're sending a message that the wrong sorts of people won't be welcome in Virginia. I also think an interesting sub-theme that, that's come up in, in Northam is that uh, his ads are made by the same people who did John Asaf's ads in, in Georgia 6. And his ads are different from, from Asaf's ads because the populations that they're targeting are different. Uh, but this is definitely a company that is a believer in the, um, the focus group methodology. And it's something we've we mentioned on, on the weeds and uh, just randomly offhandedly, but I've, I've heard more feedback from people, is that, you know, there's real questions about whether that is the right way to think about political messaging. And, and one way that you that you saw this uh, very clearly in, in Virginia is that Northam came out with some ads in which he said um, he he wants to work with Donald Trump on, on making things better. And one thing that you hear, I hear from all kinds of Democratic consultants who, who do focus groups universally is that people say that they want Democrats to not just be a knee-jerk anti-Trump party, right? So you have sort of two, two different, like, factoids floating out there. One is that Donald Trump objectively is quite unpopular. He's not unpopular everywhere. Obviously, like, Doug Jones is trying to run in Alabama, but he's unpopular nationwide. Uh, he's definitely unpopular in Virginia. And so one thing you might do is just position yourself as being against this unpopular incumbent president. On the other hand, people say overwhelmingly that like they don't like the idea of Democrats as just the anti-Trump party and that they want parties to go together and, and get things done. Uh, Northam, in his primary campaign, very much tapped into segment number one. He he did this ad where he, like, introduces himself. He's like, I'm just an army doctor. I was a pediatric neurosurgeon. And when I look at Donald Trump, I see a narcissistic maniac. You know, blah, blah. It, like, it had nothing to do with anything. But he was just signaling emotional solidarity with college-educated Virginia Democrats who think Donald Trump is fucking crazy. Um, then and, his, and I think when you talk about this focus group question, 
these focus groups are very much focused on what do the voters who are swing, who are undecided, who have weak partisan affiliations, what sort of messages appeal to them the most or, or what do they say appeal to them? But I think with this, uh, these off-year elections, there's uh, another sort of topic, another sort of question, which is about mobilizing the base voters and who can mobilize turnout most effectively when you, you don't have presidential candidates on the ballot to do this. And this is something that Democrats have really struggled with uh, in recent midterm elections and so on. And uh, But it seems like Northam, you know, he is not running a campaign designed to make passionate activists really excited about turning out to vote for him and getting all their friends to turn out to vote for him. He's running a very traditional uh, campaign from the traditional Democratic playbook and conventional wisdom of how you win over swing voters, which is you seem reasonable. You talk about jobs. You talk about, you know, cutting taxes. You say that uh, Republicans are for special interests and um, and and that's that's his bet basically that's that's the campaign he's chosen to run and um and you know he's he's still ahead in the polls right now so it's it's despite all this hand-wringing it's a little early to say that it's a remarkable failure but if there is on election day uh some a surprise and and there's different turnout you you, you wouldn't be able to say that that uh that you couldn't see this coming like with Ed Gillespie running all these ads about immigrants um but also from Gillespie's uh, perspective, I, I, I think there's another narrative that's gotten a little less attention, which is that he himself uh, at many of his campaign rallies are half empty. Uh, he, he, is, he is a more traditional Republican candidate. So in a way, he is using these ads to try to mobilize Trump voters and uh, people who, uh, who wouldn't traditionally uh, – who might not be so excited to to come and vote for a corporate lobbyist. So, so, so he has his own enthusiasm problems, too. So to pull this together, what we have is, on the Republican side, a candidate who has experience in appealing to the non-Trump segment of the Republican Party and who is making a concerted effort to appeal to the Trump segment of the Republican Party. And on the Democratic side, uh, a candidate whose only response to the strongest attack on him is to kind of Wave is is for the party to wave their hands and say that's racist, while not tying their opponent to the president of the United States, who is widely understood in the state to be divisive and racist. Yeah, and I mean, uh, another thing that's that's sort of interesting to me about this, right, is that not only is Gillespie personally has you know very deep ties to the D.C. Republican establishment. I, I mean, a, an interesting thing about Virginia politics is that. Most a lot of what people in America think of as Washington is in fact like geographically located in Virginia, uh, particularly on the Republican side. And so like that's a Gillespie, right? Like he is a Washington, D.C. guy who happens to live in northern Virginia, like most of the Republican establishment. Um, but he's running this very Trumpy kind of campaign. And I think an interesting thing about that is that uh, George W. Bush was recently in the state campaigning for Gillespie, uh, raising money for Gillespie, which, of course, is understandable. I mean, Gillespie worked in his administration, was RNC chair when he was president. He thinks Ed Gillespie is a good, is a good guy. Uh, at the same time, 
If you were to say, how did George W. Bush's brand of conservatism differ from Donald Trump's brand of conservatism? Just like exactly this point of like, do you attempt to mobilize racialized panic about immigrants is like the first, second, th- those are, that's like the main way in which they differ. And George W. Bush, right after doing this Gillespie campaign stop, did this big speech where he's like, you know, not naming Trump by names, but talking about how like nativism and a curdled kind of nationalism. And he won all these, all these plaudits. And nobody who I've seen in the like never Trump consultant world on Twitter, none of them seem to have any problem with what Gillespie is doing because they don't have a problem with Gillespie, right? And there's a, there's like a, I I forget what it is. There's some old 19th century saying about uh, Tory men and Whig measures being the kind of preferred politics uh, of of a certain kind of of English people to say that, like, you wanted a proper conservative person in charge, but to then implement liberal reforms. And what a lot of Republicans seem to want is these, you know, Tory men and Trumpy measures, right, where you know deep down that Ed Gillespie is aware that Virginia does not have sanctuary cities and that therefore cracking down on them will not reduce MS-13 crime. But also you just want him to win the election. So, like, this is a good tactic. But at the same time, a lot of those people at least are presenting themselves to elite media circles as, like, actually repulsed by the way Trump conducts politics. And, when they and don't I seem to be. say that the, the, this trend goes back, you know, y- you say that George W. Bush, of course, um, tried not to whip up racialized panic about crimes committed by uh, non-white people. But uh, in his father, when he ran for president, of course, famously ran the Willie Horton ad against Michael Dukakis, which was all about sort of whipping up this panic about crimes committed by non-white people. So, so this has been a part of, you know, the and, and George H.W. Bush is is the most country club-esque Republican that you could probably imagine. And and he's now very sort of looked back on by uh, even Democrats as as a decent president. It was a kinder, gentler America. Uh, with but, more racial panic. Yeah, but but this this has been part of the accepted playbook among the uh, Republican uh, establishment for quite some time. So I think that it's possible that the distinction that gets drawn in the minds of the Republican consultant class between, ex, you know, acceptable, between what Ed Gillespie is doing and what Trump is doing, I think that it's possible that that distinction uh, persists. <laughs> I don't, I think that we, I think that you guys are right that it isn't real in the minds of voters. But as I've been saying, the reason that immigration can be used in cases like this is because it ties an ostensibly race-blind concern about law and order to these often very powerful racialized fears. But there are definitely also people who do take, if not a, you know, whether or not they are themselves racist or not racist is never the most relevant question, but they do take a law and order approach to this. And a lot of those are the people who are not in deep red communities, who are upper-middle-class, educated people who nonetheless vote Republican, i.e. the Northern Virginia Republican consultant class. So for them, it may very well be the case that what Ed Gillespie is doing is understandable on a policy basis in the way what Donald Trump did when he, you know, attacked Judge Gonzalo Curiel because his parents were born in Mexico, Um, you know, when he did other things that suggested that he had problems not just with 
unauthorized immigrants, but with people who weren't white, that crossed a line for them. And I think that, you know, what they're doing there is kind of in their, oh, we understand real America projection, saying, well, the voters of Virginia understand it isn't the same, when in fact what they mean is, to us, this is permissible. You know, when I think back to when I first heard the term sanctuary cities in a political context used as a political attack. I think back to the 2008 Republican presidential primary, and this was actually an attack that Mitt Romney used against Rudy Giuliani, who he was running against at the time, because, you know, he had had some pro-immigrant policies in New York, and and Romney sort of... um, was very uh, on message at hammering Giuliani for supporting sanctuary cities. And and this was not a weedsy discussion about, you know, the the policy response to, uh, you know, reporting and the federal government and, and so on. This, this was meant to be very simply a term signaling that Rudy Giuliani likes illegal immigrants and will offer them, you know, uh, comfort, give them sanctuary, and so on. And and the term has sort of persisted since then. It it it's it's a it's a very snappy term, and and uh, and and it does signal what you're talking about, Dara. These uh, these law and order issues, and the fact that Gillespie is tying it sanctuary cities to this criminal gang issue. It, it It is, I think, justified in, in the minds of the Republican consultant class as, well, this is about, you know, criminals. This is about the law. This isn't about racism against Hispanics. This, this, is, this is purely, uh, you know, a law issue. Okay, I want to take a break, but I, I actually want to talk about, about Rudy Giuliani and, and talk about the sort of origins of this. This episode is brought to you by Parachute. Uh, I've been sleeping on Parachute's incredibly beautiful sheets uh, for, for a while now, and they're really nice. You know, they look great. They're very comfortable. It's, it's a great just sort of addition to my home. Very, very happy with them. Uh, their, their products are designed at headquarters in Venice Beach in California. Their sheets have got like a modern, clean design. It works with any style of home. It, it works really well in, in our house. They got natural colors, minimalist styles. It, it's gender neutral, you know, so my wife likes it. I like it. They incorporate a lot of thoughtful design details, like they've got a, a black envelope closure on their pillowcases, soft rubber buttons on the bottom of their duvet covers. It's easy to mix and match between all the different sort of colors and fabrics. You know, so you look you look sort of fresh, modern, new, without being like too cutting edge, aggressive. Uh, you know, so it, it can be incorporated with any kind of decor plan. Uh, so you visit parachutehome.com slash weeds for free shipping and returns on your own set of sheets. Plus, Parachute offers a 60-night trial. So if, you know, for some reason you don't love it, you just send it back, no questions asked. Uh, they think you're gonna love it. So it's parachutehome.com slash weeds. You get free shipping and returns. Check it out. I remember when, when I was growing up in, in New York and, and Rudy Giuliani was, was the mayor. And this was a big, this really was a big issue at the time. It was a, a big part of Giuliani's politics as a Republican mayor in what was obviously a very Democratic city and was trying, he was trying to get the votes, I think, specifically of uh, West African and Dominican immigrants. I mean, I think who mostly stayed Democrats, but he was trying to make inroads in, in those communities along a, a number of dimensions, knowing that the both the African-American and the Puerto Rican communities in New York were very hardcore opponents of him, had to slice the ethnic salami in different ways. But also the New York City Police Department was, like, a really important constituency of Rudy Giuliani. It's a whole big theme 
on many fronts of Giuliani's mayorality was that he had the backs of police officers and in doing so was going to fix crime in New York. And the sanctuary city thing, it it combined both of these themes because my recollection at the time, at least, was that New York City police department officials did not want to do federal immigration bureaucrats' dirty work for them, was, I, I I think, how it was conceived. That, like, they were, I don't know what, like, they were hitting the streets, arresting criminals. They were not going to, like, be checking people's papers and, like, seeing who was at the airport when. And this was, like, it was somebody else's problem, you know? And that that was how the Rudy Giuliani synthesis of this, that like New York City, Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, we welcome immigrants here, also law and order, tough guy cops, we're going to like catch murderers, we're not going to run around asking about whether the busboy has a visa or not. Um, And definitely like a big move in Trump's politics has been to rework that whole dynamic so that the cops and the border patrol guys and like we're all we're all on the same law and order team. So I think and and one point that I want to make here is that when Rudy Giuliani as mayor of New York, you know, when he was mayor of New York and even in 2008 when Mitt Romney was hitting him over this, the current system of federal local cooperation on immigration wasn't really mature yet because federal immigration enforcement as we know it today has only existed for the last 15 years uh, and is on a scope that couldn't have been imagined uh, when Rudy Giuliani, you know, when it moved into Gracie Mansion. But it's it, it's been a free-floating culture war term uh, that kind of refers to any city that is, you know, trying to be, trying to make law enforcement welcoming to immigrants that has now seized onto this actual policy issue of detainers. But Matt, I think that You're right about the broad politics of this, but what Trump has been able to exploit is that there's a longstanding tension between uh, law enforcement executives and -and rank-and-file police officers that goes back to, at very least, the popularity of CompStat in the 90s and arguably further than that, where because law enforcement, you know, police chiefs and leadership are the ones who have to be accountable to, you know, local government but not necessarily to voters, especially where they're, you know, appointed chiefs and not elected sheriffs, they are concerned about getting the crime rate down. They're concerned about getting violent crime down. They're not concerned about the kind of what looks good, you know, handcuffing a bunch of guys, getting a bunch of sweeps, rough, tough kind of thing. So they're concerned about, you know, deploying their resources in the most effective manner and doing things where they're really going to have the most impact. And that often means saying this kind of violation of the law is less important to us than this other thing. Um, That is not necessarily a philosophy that rank-and-file officers share. And furthermore, rank-and-file officers also often believe that they have a better sense than the people, you know, the brass, the people who are sitting at desks all day about what it's really like on the streets. And therefore, they deserve to have as much leeway as humanly possible to do whatever they think is necessary for public safety, and they shouldn't have a lot of constraints on them. So the idea that a, you know, police chief, much less a city council, which is where a lot of these you know, detainer-restricting ordinances have come from in the last five years should be able to tell rank-and-file cops, no, you can't, 
you know, it's it's not it's not your job to to ask people, you know, whether they're here legally. It's not the job of local jail officials to decide who's really, you know, that 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 should be done by some other body that doesn't really know who the problem people are on the streets, that that is an insult to their sense of professionalism um, and makes it, you know, reinforces the the Trumpian culture war narrative that there is this alliance of people who genuinely don't want to do what it what needs to be done to make America safe again. So I think that that's where the idea that sanctuary cities are a you know, are hostile to policing has really taken root. Wait, or I mean, guess to put it a slightly different way, right? So, like, the police chief is trying to manage a finite budget, right? in effect, right? And at the end of the day, if the murder rate is going down, his job is really, really safe. Whereas if the murder rate is going up, his job may be in jeopardy. So he wants the resources at his disposal primarily allocated to things he believes will reduce the murder rate, right? Which, some of it is weird, but some of this, like, hotspot policing tactics and and various other things. But the actual police officers want discretion, and they want to control the immediate environment that they are exposed to. So they want to be able to basically do what they want with their time and with the people who come into contact with them, and to be able to throw the book at people who have violated laws, right? And there's a clash in perspective because if the murder rate goes up 10% and people are like, yo, what's going on? Like, everyone's getting killed in the city. You can't really come back and say like, well, you know, we processed all this extra paperwork on behalf of ICE and got the, right? Like, that doesn't, that's not going to wash as an explanation. But at the same time, the officers want to just be able to do what they want to do in the moment and not have the city council telling them, no, you have to let these people go, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the other part of this is especially when we're talking about murder cases, uh, solving murder cases is really hard. And it is not something that even as the murder rate has gone down precipitously over the last quarter century, even if it's going up in some places over the last couple of years, the percentage of cases that police have been able to solve has stayed flat. It's, they are not able to solve more. They're, it's not that they were only able to solve X number of cases in any given year. It's that they just, there's a percentage of cases that are nuts they can't crack. And so when you're talking about the argument in favor of sanctuary cities or in favor of law enforcement not being aggressive with immigrants, the argument tends to be, well, we want these people, if they're witnesses to violent crime or if they're victims of violent crime, to be willing to come forward and talk to us, which is fair as far as it goes. And there definitely is evidence that, you know, under the Trump administration, like domestic violence reporting has gone down among Latino women. But it's also true that police community relations aren't great in a lot of areas for a lot of reasons. And getting people to talk to you isn't as simple as saying, I'm not going to deport you. So there are definitely low-level things that demonstrate that sanctuary policy, you know, that that law enforcement being aggressive towards immigrants makes it harder to notice crime. There isn't really the evidence that law enforcement taking a welcoming attitude towards immigrants makes it easier to keep communities safe. I mean, the, the the best evidence I saw on this found that sanctuary city policies had no impact on violent crime one way or the other, that right. it did not have the uh, advocates 
the advocates have this nice story to tell right. that like this is going to make people cooperate with us more and we're going to solve more crime. That does not seem to be true. Uh, the opponents have this other view, which is that like, I guess like quantitatively, some undocumented immigrants are also violent criminals. So somehow if you had deported them all, there would be a lower crime rate. Anyway, it does seem like this really is an issue where the stakes are your political and psychic orientation toward undocumented immigrants, right? Like, if you want to be mean to undocumented immigrants, uh, this is a way to do that that will not worsen the crime situation. If you want to be nice, this is also a way to do that that will also not worsen your crime situation. But it doesn't, it really is, it's an interesting case where, like, it really is about what it seems like it's about. Yeah. Which is how your community wants to have a relationship to the undocumented immigrants who are living there. I think that that's, yes, I think that that is mostly true. But that kind of comes back to the, back when Rahm Emanuel was running Democratic messaging. Um, because at that time, the Democratic line was, well, if it doesn't really matter either way, we might as well take the gimme points, right? We might as well be willing to make that concession so that we can seem like we're owning the center on the immigration issue. Yes, we're for legalizing people, but we're also for immigration enforcement. We're just for fixing the problem. And what happened over the first term of Obama as, you know, deportations were at record levels was that the people who actually were being hurt, you know, it's, it's it's not an entirely outcome-free policy. It's just that the outcomes are concentrated on undocumented immigrants who aren't the people who vote. Um, As those people became more organized and were able to really call Democrats' attention to the fact that rhetorically, Democrats were saying that they were Americans and deserved to be legalized, but their policies were actually, you know, making their lives much harder, Democrats became more responsive to the idea that it wasn't actually a gimme issue for them. And so have turned, you know, really are opposed to immigration enforcement on a level that they weren't, you know, back in 2008. There's a weird thing here where I think Democrats took a political position that was very viable and that then because Republicans prevented them from enacting their policy preference, they've fallen back on a second best strategy that is much less viable, right? That if you took sort of Obama 2008-2009 at his word, right? Like, the idea here was that immigration enforcement was going to be very, very strict, but that a large share of the undocumented residents of the United States would obtain legal status. And so they would not be negatively impacted by this strict enforcement of immigration law. But he did not succeed in getting any such measure passed. And so we got the strict enforcement without the legal status. And so then we started to get very ferocious activist pushback against the strict enforcement because law was being enforced strictly against people who Obama had said ought to be legalized. And so then Democrats came around to a position where they are against strict enforcement of immigration law, which even though I think all the evidence continues to indicate that, like, a path to citizenship type solution is very politically viable. It seems like a lax enforcement of stated law position is a lot trickier to defend. Democratic politicians seem to have agreed to this position without necessarily having a really 
a strategy that they believe in about how they want to talk about it or what they want to say that they're doing. And that's part of what we're seeing. It seems to me that's part of what we're seeing in Virginia, that like Northam has gone along with an evolving Democratic Party consensus, but he does not have like a like a message about why this is a good idea or something that that he exactly supports. And I think this is um, you you saw this a bit in uh, Chuck Schumer's comments recently. He um, he is a, a veteran of the era where uh, Rahm Emanuel was a leading figure in in crafting the Democrats' message on immigration. He ran uh, the Senate arm of the successful 2006 Democratic uh, campaigns. And uh, and Schumer, and he's been a big player in the Senate afterward when it comes to sort of trying to actually get legislation together, the failed effort to advance the Gang of Eight uh, bill, uh, which which actually passed the Senate but failed, uh, was never brought to a vote in the House in 2013, uh, Schumer is really um, he's he's got this this instinct that Democrats really do have to say that say tough things about the border say that like like he will he said recently that um, in terms of you know what sort of compromise might be acceptable he he talked about like having drones on the border uh to to better prevent people from crossing it and a lot of young democratic activists who've sort of grown up in this new era of politics uh, found that comment to be like kind of horrifying but schumer is from the earlier era of democratic messaging where he uh he very much thinks that you know you you do have to signal if to, to have a viable mainstream democratic message that that you're going to actually enforce immigration laws. And that yeah, you, and that's that, like Chuck Schumer at 10% opacity. Like, the fact that he wasn't saying many of the things that Donald Trump has laid out are good ideas is a measure of how far his party has moved. To me, I mean, what often gets lost in this, though, is that, like, there's a real policy element and, like, a policy irony to it, right? That, like, Prime Minister Chuck Schumer would enact a policy that was very, very generous to the majority of the undocumented immigrants living in the United States, and that was then very harsh on hypothetical future undocumented immigrants coming into the United States. And that makes perfect sense. Like, it is not unusual in a whole range of different policy contexts to do, I mean, this is now the forbidden word, but some form of amnesty plus crackdown, right? Like, that's a a tactic that is widely used when you try to make a policy shift about something that has been formally against the rules, but ignored for a long time. And it, like, it came up in, uh, it was a 2007 bill, 2013 bill. Like, this idea keeps getting (laughs) dragged around. It uh, often gets large numbers of votes in the Senate and things like that. It polls well. It is, in my humble opinion, a good idea. And we are constantly left because of various political machinations dealing with this, like, other world in which we have millions of people, most of whom are completely harmless, contributing members of American society. We have a limited throughput capacity in terms of deportations. We have law enforcement needs that are much more serious than, like, the problem of uh, people cleaning other people's houses for money uh, without a visa. And we, like, 
I mean, I, I, I honestly, like, I, I hate to be the, like, boring centrist person on a policy topic, but, like, I firmly believe that this is an issue in which the boring centrist compromise is a good idea, and America is, like, stuck in these horrible debates because of, basically, uh, John Boehner would not bring a bill to the floor. So, I mean, I think that, for Fucking one John thing, Boehner, man. like, this was never just a policy argument for Democrats, right? The reason that Chuck Schumer thinks it's, has always thought it's so important is that he thinks it's important that Democrats show they're not soft on security. And that was the logic of, like, you know, Barack Obama wasn't bringing a comprehensive immigration bill to the floor in his first two years. He was ratcheting up enforcement in the absence of that on the logic that he would get some credit from somebody somewhere for it. And that didn't happen. And so I think Democrats right now are in the uncomfortable position where they tried to own the center, did not get the you know, bipartisanship legislatively or the the public opinion credit from the people who believe in strict immigration enforcement that you would expect from a government that's doing strict immigration enforcement. So they pivoted from that to taking a stance that the activists in the base in their party thought was good and now appear to be you know, in now appear to be losing credit with the people who never gave them credit to begin with. I think the other problem here is that Ralph Northam can't pass comprehensive immigration reform, right? There is an aspect in which immigration enforcement can be a state and local issue, even though legalization cannot. And so as much as we, you know, as much as there are jokes about, you know, dog catchers running abortion ads, there are issues that might be winners for Democrats at the national level where, the state level just can't do anything. And that does, I think, put a Democrat like Ralph Northam in a difficult position where there isn't policy-wise anything he can say he's for instead. Okay. We've been going long, but I I want to take a break and I I do want to relitigate the primary. These days, like, everybody is trying to sell you a mattress online because everybody knows that the traditional mattress shopping experience doesn't work that well. But here's the problem with all these online companies. They're offering a one-size-fits-all solution to a better sleep. And guess what? One-size-fits-all, it doesn't work. You wouldn't buy shoes that way. You wouldn't buy pants that way. It's not a good way to buy a mattress either. I mean, you know, you're taking a shot in the dark. There's somebody out there who these mattresses are good for, but that might not be you. Uh, So Helix Sleep offers something that doesn't exist anywhere else. It's a mattress that's personalized to your preferences and sleeping style, but it's not going to set you back thousands of dollars. Uh, so the way it works is you go to helixsleep.com slash weeds, take a simple quiz. It's two or three minutes and, you know, that's so little time compared to the amount of time you're going to spend sleeping on and enjoying a mattress. Uh, so then based on your answers, they're going to build a custom mattress that will be the best thing you've ever slept on. And for couples, even personalize each side of the mattress uh, because just because you're you're sort of compatible and in love doesn't mean you sleep the same way. So that's a really amazing feature, and nobody else does that. Your custom mattress arrives direct to your door in a week. Shipping is completely free. You tried for a hundred nights. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and they'll refund you in full. So here's the bottom line. You go to helixsleep.com slash weeds right now and you get $50 toward your custom mattress. That's helixsleep.com slash weeds for $50 off your order. Helixsleep.com slash weeds. I don't think it would make sense to, to talk about this race without having talked about the, the slightly odd uh, Democratic primary that that played out in, in the gubernatorial race earlier in which Northam, the lieutenant governor, uh, clearly the sort of guy who was next in line, was challenged by Tom Perriello, a, a former House member who secured the endorsements from a huge range of like 
national political Democratic figures, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, but also John Podesta. Uh, his, his spokesman was somebody who I knew from Hillary's campaign. And the race both took on a kind of like eerie echo of Hillary versus Bernie, while also not actually, while Perriello had the national sort of Hillary-type establishment behind him too, but then he also lost anyway by like a pretty huge margin. It's tough to put that race in the same box because Northam just, he's been running, he's run statewide before, he was already elected, he had good connections in the Virginia State Party. Um, I believe um, a bunch of black activist groups were also, uh, I mean, national activist groups, but but church leaders and, and so on, uh, more locally oriented groups were on his side and uh, and he won the primary pretty easily and and it, it really was kind of this contest between you talked about Northam he had this ad where he said that Trump was a narcissistic maniac in the primary but but really one thing that this race did sort of seem to be about was Periello was trying to sort of jump the line by nationalizing the race and positioning himself as um, the liberal standard bearer in the age of Trump, who was going to like, he wanted to make this race about Trump and and he hoped that he could ride anti-Trump enthusiasm to victory in both the primary and the general. And that didn't happen. Northam won. So, uh, so that was sort of the... Um, outcome of the primary there. And and he seems to be now sort of sticking with this focus on local issues, trying to mobilize, um, you know, the the traditional state players on his side and so on. But I I think an interesting uh, thing that that you see here in that primary that that there was an echo of in in the Hillary Bernie race that will continue, I think, to be a problem for Democrats going forward, which is that Democrats, like rank and file Democrats, tend to be pretty enthusiastic about Democratic Party elected officials and are like really into them. And are like, sure, the lieutenant governor should go be our nominee. Uh, whereas Republicans are in this constant state of like slightly sociopathic, like loathing of their own elected officials. But we know that the critical, like broad mass of Americans kind of has a, in my opinion, irrational hatred of political parties and party leaders. And there is, to me, something to be said for the like senseless churn of nominating the outsiders and, like, letting somebody, you know, like, beat up on the establishment chump and then they can be all new and exciting versus putting forward the, like, boring guy who rose up through the ranks. Because exactly what, like, uh, voters don't want to hear is, like, (laughs) tedious in-the-weeds discussions of the legislative history of years-old bills and how if you really understood the political context of that time, you know, like, things were different and how, like, I'm a competent professional who's gone and, and done this for a long time. Uh, but but Democrats, like, I mean, my, my aunt lives in uh, Virginia and she's, you know, a kind of, I don't know, small town. You know, she she does lawn signs and makes calls and is always active in these things. And, like, she loves Ralph Northam. Like, she thought this Tom Perriello thing was, like, the craziest stuff she'd ever heard, uh, precisely because, like, Northam had been around for so long. Uh, Whereas Republican conservative activists seem to much more have a, like, instinctive distrust of anyone who's ever 
done anything. And I think that's in some ways useful to them. Do you but think that Tom case, Perello would have escaped the label of establishment chump? Uh, I'm not saying he would have escaped the label of establishment chump. I'm saying he just like literally had very little background in elective office, little relevant record, and could do the thing that, you know, Barack Obama did in 2008 or uh, Donald Trump did in 2016, where by dint of your sort of weak qualifications, you can just sort of say what you want and and move on with, with the future. But I think what, what you're saying about, you know, trends within Democratic and Republican primaries is generally true. But in this case, it's really not true. Like, Gillespie was the front runner, the establishment choice for Republicans. He was challenged by a Trumpist, Corey Stewart, uh, who um, had been enmeshed in some racial controversies, and uh, uh, and Gillespie won. And uh, so he is the nominee, and, and that is one thing that I do feel, you have all these sort of takes that are already being written uh, or, or reported pieces about, you know, Democrats being nervous about their lack of enthusiasm, or, oh no, Ralph Northam has no charisma he can't excite people. He won't be able to turn people out. Democrats are going to blow it. And I know that Gillespie has this kind of mystique because he did come shockingly close in in that 2014 race. But but he's not like an exciting, charismatic candidate. He's a former lobbyist uh, who's been a party insider in the Republican Party for years. And uh he does not necessarily seem to be um, really resonating with Republican base voters necessarily. So, so this is kind of going to be a test. Like I see sort of signs of perhaps low enthusiasm on both sides. And, and then in there, it would be a sort of question of, you know, what's the relative magnitude, just like how unenthusiastic are Democratic base voters compared to Republican voters? So, You know, do you think that if Gillespie loses, you're going to see kind of a Mitt Romney style recrimination cycle where Republican, you know, party culture warriors say this proves that you can't fake being a real conservative, that you have to have somebody who's less experienced? Corey would have (laughs) won. Corey would have won. I mean, you already see this. um, Steve Bannon is trying to recruit a bunch of primary challengers to go against boring uh, Republican senators who are incumbents who are quite conservative, but who are not necessarily exciting culture warriors. And 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 that's already happening. And I think that was going to happen regardless of whether Gillespie wins or loses. I think if Gillespie gets blown out, there will be some uh, recriminations uh, on the Republican side about, you know, can we keep running these sort of boring establishment types in in the age of Trump. Um, and they'll mostly keep trying to, but but there will be probably more um, more primary challenges and more, you know, more of an effort to shake things up in these ways. It, but if he comes close, then I think they'll score that as a win. I mean, he won't have won, but this is an off-year election under a Republican president and Democrats were supposed to, like, have way higher enthusiasm. So if Gillespie can almost win, uh, I I do think that, you know, Republicans aren't going to like totally freak out about the fact that he loses. He could be the Archie Parnell of the right. Yeah. Um, But it it should also be said, 
it'll be worth seeing what happens in the legislature races here, mm-hmm. too. Um, nobody has any idea what happens in House of Delegate races. Like, there's no polling on that. Uh, the geography of the situation is weird because Virginia has a very sort of a heavy-handed Republican gerrymander in the state legislature, but also the underlying uh, partisan geography of Virginia has shifted a lot over the years. So it's not always totally clear that they've done it right, or at least optimally for the political circumstances of 2017, there's a, you know, reasonable chance Democrats could flip the Virginia State Senate. Um, They are so far from having a majority in the lower house that I don't think anyone sees that as remotely realistic. But if a bunch of down-ballot Republicans in races that nobody pays attention to because nobody ever pays attention to state legislative races loses... I do think that's the kind of thing that will cause congressional Republicans to need to think about what they're doing. Yeah, and there's been a lot of, um, you know, off-schedule special election state house races this year. And there are some uh, spreadsheets you can check out online that are tracking that sort of thing. But uh, generally, the trend is that um, Democrats have been doing Well, uh, not in every race. The local circumstances differ, but they seem to be doing a lot better in these special elections. Especially not in Connecticut. Yes. Uh, And so I I think you're right that, you know, you you have all these questions about Northam and Gillespie. And to some extent, what happens in the lower, in the state house will be determined by who they can turn out to vote. But, you know, you can also theoretically imagine maybe some uh, some split ticket voters or some people who care less about those lower ballot races. So, so I do think that this question that Democrats have been struggling with for so many years of how they can finally get back some of those state houses, some improve their position at least in in some of these chambers, uh, is is going to be really put to the test and. They, they've been hoping that sort of the the enthusiasm gap and anti-Trump sentiment can do it for them. But, but if Democrats wake up after Election Day in Virginia 2017 and they've made no real progress in either state house, I think that's going to be a really worrying sign for the party. And that's where I do think these questions about the, the strategy, you know, play in. Because I feel like Democrats have been on these, like, two tracks, where on the one hand, they're counting on anti-Trump fervor to help them resolve their enthusiasm problems with statehouse races and blah, 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 blah. But then on the other hand, they're, like, looking at focus groups that are still telling them, well, you don't want to just nationalize everything. You don't want to make everything about Trump. It seems to me difficult to ride a wave of anti-Trump fervor to down-ballot wins if you're not going to make try to make the races be about Donald Trump, right? I mean, this was, like, the, the weirdest thing about the Ossoff campaign to me was that, like, double view, where, like, he's raising all this national money, clearly because people are seeing a proxy battle about Donald Trump, and then you're campaigning, and you're like, this isn't about Donald Trump, but then, like, what's it about? Do you think that the that Democrats should just ignore the focus groups? Or do you think that the focus groups are a model for how Democrats should act once they're in office, but that they need to ignore them until that point? I should develop a, a firmer take on this. No, I don't know. I just, I do think that you need to bring into alignment, like, your different theories of the case, right? Like, if the idea is anti-Trump 
fervor is going to help our down ballot enthusiasm problem, then I feel like you need to campaign as if that's your theory. You know, I mean, at least certainly in states that Hillary Clinton won, like, I don't, I don't really understand the idea that like, well, we're going to localize this and then we're going to wonder why it is that grassroots Democrats are not enthusiastic. That said, uh, thanks, Darren and Andrew, for for listening. Uh, Thanks to our uh, engineer, Peter Leonard. And uh, we will be back next week.